netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We like to dig deep into the technical side, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. In today's podcast, Mike Seymour is going to speak with Ron Frankel from Proof. Now, Proof has been around since 2002 and uh, specializes in pre-vis, post-vis, as well as final visual effects. And we've spoken to Ron Frankel in the past. Uh, I noticed when I was doing some research on my notes uh, over the years, I noticed that we talked to him back in 2007 in the VES Festival years ago. I think that one was at the Writers Guild, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, back when VES used to do these um, festivals. Anyway, Mike Seymour really wanted to dig into the business of Previs and kind of where do you push it? How do you? How far do you take it? So when he was in Los Angeles for SIGGRAPH, we got together and went over and visited with Ron at the proof offices in uh, the Miracle Mile. And uh, that's what you're going to listen to now. So let's jump in now. This is Mike Seymour speaking with Ron Frankel, who's the founder of Proof. And we're here at the offices of Proof, and I'm joined by Ron. How are you, sir? I'm great, thank you. So I last saw you in Germany at uh, at FMX. We were crossing in a lobby, if I seem to recall correctly. Yes. yes. Do you enjoy it? I uh, love FMX. Yeah, that's a, a great show, conference. So I wanted to talk to you about uh, Previs, and as I said to you, in Germany we were crossing uh, the lobby. I was like, I've really been fascinated to um, to sit down with you because there's some really interesting things to discuss. Now that we're in a world where Previs is so accepted and so understood, um, but I think we sort of need to revisit some of the kind of, I guess, ongoing criteria upon which people are selecting previs, not least of which is back in the day, previs was all about pre-visualizing a script. But now there's the whole pre-previs, right? This like, I want to get my film green lit, so help me kind of get <laughs> something happening. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you just call it previs, but... What is that? But it's certainly an important part of the system now. Sure, sure. So, yeah, there's a whole new lexicon of uh, visualizations or the the vises, as we refer to them, um, that really look at what the you know what the particular goals are at that moment in time. So, uh, oftentimes we'll be called in in the very early days of a film in kind of the development phase, and we refer to that usually as pitch viz. Um, pitch viz can have a couple of different real, you can have a few different purposes and, and depending on what the client's looking for, we approach it differently. You know, we have kind of different strategies for how to go about doing it. Uh, sometimes the pitch viz is really to get investors excited about a project or to get talent excited about a project. And it's really much more of kind of a sales piece. So you want to make something really slick and shiny and exciting and you're far less concerned about production kind of feasibility and reality. You're just making something that just sings. Um, that'll get everyone really jazzed about the about that particular project. Um, other times, the pitch viz is more along the lines of story development. Maybe it's a third act. Uh, maybe it's a particular uh, you know sequence somewhere buried in the script that they just want to visualize to make sure it's working. So it's almost more of a writing process. Like, hey, we have this big visual sequence. We've written it. It has a few lines in the script, but no one's really sure what they mean. Let's look at it and make sure that this actually works as a story point, that it works for our character. So 
how the heck do you budget something like that? <laughs> See, like one of the things I think is really fascinating is we're always saying in production, you need to sort things out in pre, right? And yeah. you're like, when you're in post, it's really expensive. On set, it's incredibly expensive. So sort it out in pre, right? Yeah. The trouble is sorting out in pre means that you still have to budget it. Like someone has to come along and say, I need you to do this thing. And you're like, well, we don't know what it is yet. We haven't even got a previous to quote it on. <laughs> That's the whole point of it. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, we really look at this as a, um, you know, a little bit differently than visual effects. We really look at ourselves as being a design resource for the production. So, so you're charging by the day? Or? Yeah. Right, yeah. so it's, it's so like a... We're basically a, a design bureau, a design service, almost like a, a, a mini department within the production. And rather than looking at it as some finite quantity of work that we're going to accomplish, we give the production a sense of kind of milestones, how much work we can be expected to produce in a week, for instance. And what we're actually working on becomes a discussion. And if, if, you're, the, if you're the production and you come to me and you say, hey, we really want to look at this um, you know, sequence in a tunnel and their, you know, missile flies into it and the car explodes and we just, we're trying to get our heads wrapped around what's going on in there. You know, as with any, you know, I almost look at this as a, with a literary analogy. If you ask me a question, if I can answer it with one sentence, great, we're done. You know, maybe that took a day or two. If, you know, if I need to elaborate into a full paragraph, that'll take a little bit longer. If I need to develop it into a full essay, well, that'll take even longer. So the, the production has a lot of power in this to kind of say when we're done. Yeah, absolutely. But, but there's an exploratory nature to it, right? Like yes. if someone wants to, to use the phrase, dick around, yeah. dicking around in pre is not a bad thing. Like it's no. much better to do it then. If yeah. someone's unsure about something and they need to find it, yeah. finding it then is a really helpful time. Absolutely. Does that then translate to the sort of artist you have? Because it's not a task-driven thing where you go, you know, like I'm going to get my shots done. I'm going to get through them. It's more yep. like am I going to be able to cope with someone saying what you've done is terrific, it just isn't what I want, I'm going to throw <laughs> yeah. it all out. We're going to throw it up. Yeah, we're going to chuck but, it all out. But I did what you, exactly what you said. Yeah, don't care. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it absolutely translates into the kind of artist and this is one of the – um, you know, for me, one of the, the best parts of my job is going out and finding new talent and finding new artists to join our teams um, because we're looking for a very particular kind of individual. So, you know, there's all the creative and technical skills that you have to have as an animator, right? You got to know the software. You got to know what to do with the software. Um, but the X factor is more about personality, the kind of the kind of human being that they are. And what I always say is that we are all about process. We are not about product. So right. you have to have the kind of mentality and the kind of personality where you show up to work every day excited and enthusiastic, um, but not feel that, and it's a tough one, not feel that kind of precious connection to what you did yesterday. Because whatever you did yesterday very well might have been thrown out overnight. For, and you're for, starting for no on something. Reason, yeah, for no reason of, of the quality of your work. Absolutely. And you have to kind of look at that and kind of look at it in the trash bin and kind of say, oh, okay, well, that was some good work, but what can I do next? Um, yeah. So it's a very peculiar attitude because there are, it's not, not every artist has that kind of temperament where they can show up and be that excited about the process. Okay, well, this is a related point, but it's not going to sound like it when I start talking. The, the other thing is we used to think of previews as something that was there to help the visual effects industry. Yeah. 
but it isn't really anymore because the previs is solving things for lighting departments, solving things for wardrobe because like so much stuff can be done in visual effects and visual effects spreads out into so many other departments. Like yeah. am I going to do this as a set build? And if I am going to do it as a set build, the previs is just as relevant to the set build people that are physically making stuff as it is to an effects department. So does that affect the sort of person you hire as well? Because, again, you can't be just thinking about this from an effects point of view. You have to be thinking about it from a production point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and they, they very much are related questions because that's the, you know, there, there are so many kind of individual factors that go into finding the right kind of artist, especially when it gets to the senior level artists, the supervisors, the leads, and the kind of the senior shot creators. You know, they're not animators as much as they are filmmakers, that they are filmmakers who know how to animate is really what we're looking for, because they have to understand not just the mechanics of, okay, great, I've got a character, I've got a camera, I've got to move them around, I've got to create a shot. That's an animator. They have to understand, okay, this camera has mass, it has weight, it has a lot of people that stand around it, there's a lot of equipment that goes to support it, and I have to understand how all of the decisions I'm making might actually affect the various departments on set. Is this decision that I'm making to move the camera over here going to have an impact on the art department and on the sets that they're building? Is it going to affect the, the grips? Is it going to affect you know, how they set up the stage? So they're really, the, the previous artist has, has evolved, and this has been a, a wonderful thing to watch over the, over the past years. The previous artist has really evolved into being filmmakers in their own right, and we are starting to see um, and this has been fantastic from my point of view, a, a path of, of ascension from kind of previs animator to kind of shot designer to lead to previs supervisor to director. And there, there are more and more previs artists who are then kind of launching their, you know, launching their directorial careers um, going through previs because it's, it's such a natural progression. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like, for example, uh, it's a filmmaker who's willing to sublimate their own aesthetic style for whatever it is that the filmmaker, I'm actually going to, I'm careful here because it isn't even just the filmmaker, it's like the cinematographer and stuff as well. I mean, if, you know, John Seal is the guy who was, you know, that you were, you're targeting at and that's the look, then it's whatever he likes to frame with and he likes in terms of likes, you know, whatever the DOP is, like yeah. their decisions about the way they like to tell stories has to influence previs because otherwise you're getting the wrong kind of picture. But you're not going to have that DOP in the room. You're going to have to sort of second guess them a bit, aren't you? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the artists, we tiptoe a very fine line, right? I mean, I think everyone on a production always kind of, that's part of the fun, I think, of working on film productions is we have to be, you know, we have to be receptive to ideas. We have to be students. We have to listen to what everyone around us is asking for and figure out how to reflect that back to them. And then the really fun part and the really difficult part is to kind of say, okay, great. That's a really good idea. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a really good idea. Um, we're going to kind of take all this information in. We've got the sets, we've got wardrobe, we've got, you know, we've kind of studied the, the films of the cinematographer. We've studied the past films of the director. We get a sense of the, the style, the tone. And then we're going to put all this work together and we're going to show them something that has all that plus a little bit more because our artists are going to add a little bit more to it. Because if all we're doing is reflecting back what they're asking for, sure, that's kind of, you know, that's stage one. But really the value of it is we have this great sandbox to play in. And 
part of our job is not just to reflect back to exactly what the client's asking for, but to try to find that little something extra that pushes it a little bit further, that's a little bit more exciting, a little bit more interesting. Yeah, I guess it just seems to me like... Without taking over the project, right? Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, let's take a recent film you guys worked on, which is Star Trek. Yeah. So A, the franchise has been around for 50 years. Yeah. B, the latest iteration of the franchise is three films. So there's like, well, this is the style that these films are in. Yeah. This is the universe that those three films live in. Yeah. But we just changed directors, so it's not necessarily the same. And yet by the same token, as you just said yourself, you want to do something different because otherwise it's uh, it wouldn't be a franchise that has gone on this long if it didn't evolve a bit. Yeah. I mean, that is like a heck of a kind of set yeah. of baggage. I mean, that's not baggage. That's a, that's a truck <laughs> well, backing up and giving you a, the luggage. Yes, exactly. But that's the, you know, that's why not, you know, it's why not every animator can be a previs artist. That right. there is a difference between, you know, and, and this, isn't, this isn't a knock on anyone's role. I have a tremendous respect for visual effects artists. I have tremendous respect for, um, you know, feature animation animators previs artists, it's a, it's a unique discipline because you have to be the kind of person who kind of takes in this kind of maelstrom of influences. And oftentimes, I mean, it's more often than not, those influences are, are, are contradictory um, and sometimes irreconcilable. <laughs> and, you're, and you're kind of sitting there looking at the thing and kind of saying, okay, how do I navigate through this? And that has to be and this is what becomes unique about the previs artist who really excels is that has to be energizing, right? You have to look at that problem and say, this is a fun one. Let's, okay. roll, let's roll up our sleeves and, and, and get through this one. If you're the kind of artist who looks at that and it just feels like a, you know, overwhelming kind of just morass of information, then it's not the right, that's not the right fit. Okay, but if we can jump to the other end of the spectrum. So we've yeah. discussed that like you need to understand cinema cinema language really, yeah. right? But at the other end of the spectrum, how do you know when it's enough to stop? Like if I'm doing a shot and I'm a visual effects artist, like, well, that's good. That looks real. I'm done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's a good shot. I know to move on. But there is not only an absence of that realism thing for previs, but on I imagine every show, the level that I'm willing to accept changes possibly – Per scene, like if I'm yeah. just trying to get the beats down, that's good enough. But if, mm -hmm. if they're trying to sell it to the studio, maybe and an actor's going to see it. Maybe the actor doesn't want to look goofy, even though who cares? Because they're not going to be. No one's seeing that, right? Yes. You know, we've been mocked by plenty of actors. Well, exactly. <laughs> but but the thing is, like, it would be really tempting to want to get everything to be as great as you could. But yeah. But you're not. When is enough? Yeah. yeah. I mean, when do you? How it's do you the, decide? It's the how that? long is a piece of string question. Um, yeah, that's, again, you know, I, I go back and, and I, I really do kind of revere and respect successful supervisors because, in my opinion, it's, it's one of the more difficult, it's one of the more rewarding but one of the more challenging jobs out there um, because there is nothing objective about it. You're, you're living in a completely subjective world. You're living in a world of ideas and concepts and there is never a right or a wrong answer. So, um, you know, uh, the answer to the question is there, there are a couple of ways that we approach it in terms of proof and as a company and kind of our personality, we maintain as much transparency when we're on a production as we possibly can. Um, we have an open door policy. 
We never tell the client. They can, so we want, we encourage the clients to look at stuff constantly. But are you, showing, really them, are you them. showing them like a menu? Like these are sort of the, this is like level A, B, C or D and, you know, pick kind of what level you want me to go to? Yeah. So we'll do, you know, we might do a, a really quick um, kind like of blocking a, or overview pass. Right. And if the client says, oh, I get it. That idea sucks. Let's stop. Then we're done. Right. We finished with that and we can move on to the next one. Or they might say, okay, great. This seems like it's going in the right direction. You know, let's keep. So we let, we really, as much as we can, we let the clients guide us in terms of answering that question of how much is enough. Um, and when the client isn't there or if the client for some reason, you know, and this does happen where the clients are asking for more than we think is really necessary. Cause we always know internally, um, you know, as we're hitting that point of diminishing returns, Right, no, okay, we've, but, we've but gotten it to a point. Well, we'll say we're working on Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. And I'm, we're in an office here, and yeah. so the the girls in the Ghostbusters scene in this mythical yeah. thing I'm making up walk into the room, yeah. and they're going to see something out the window, and someone's going to run and jump out the window, right? Yeah. Okay, so you could open the door, and and mannequins could slide, yeah. And otherwise, there's no the legs don't even move, kind of thing, yeah. But you could also open the door and have an approximation of the individual actresses' faces mapped on to something that is actually walking yeah. as a walk cycle. Uh, and then you could do that so it's actually lit and there are shadows and and then you could add it so that it's lit by the window yeah. <laughs> rather than being kind of grey. And like in every one of those I could see that there would be advantages and disadvantages insofar as someone would look at it and be put off by what they're seeing. And it's not even as simple as the more you do, the better. Because once you get to no. the high end of that, I'm starting to go, well, that looks creepy. There's Uncanny Valley yeah. and, wow, that's a really bad rendition of that actress. So we, I'd say maybe three, four, probably about four years ago, um, you know, every every so often, one of the things that we like to do uh, just internally is, you know, sit back and look at our work, right? We just kind of sit back and look at what we've done recently and evaluate strengths and weaknesses, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? What could we be doing better? Um, you know, I think if we didn't, if we didn't do that, I don't think we'd still be in business, right? Okay. We kind of have to every so often take stock of where we're at, how we got here. And really most fundamentally, why did we, like, why are we here doing this? And a few years ago, um, I was watching some of our previs and it was great looking stuff. Um, might've been around the time that we were doing uh, Terminator Salvation or shortly after. And you know, it was good looking stuff. But what I noticed is that we were really kind of, especially with our characters, we were, we were sliding down that slope of the Uncanny Valley. Um, computer graphics were getting better. The, the, you know, the video cards, the graphic processors, a lot more powerful. We were able to work with higher res geometry. We were able to work with higher res textures. That meant that we could, our, our modelers and our asset creators could really push the realism a little bit further. And we were getting some really good texture maps. We we're getting some pretty decent looking eyes and, and our characters' faces were starting to come to life. But, you know, as we're, most of us are aware at this point, again, the closer you get to that, the creepier they start to look. And our characters were starting to look pretty creepy. Um, so I come from an architecture background. That was my, my formal training and, and how I got into this industry was through architecture. And, you know, it caused me to kind of think back to, you know, myself as a designer and being in architecture school and the kinds of reviews and the, the design process that we would go through. And, you know, as, a, as an architecture student, you're never striving for realism. 
you're striving to express an idea about something. And it doesn't matter if you're using pastels or charcoals or technical drawings or chipboard or foam core. You gotta have to find the right medium to express that idea. It's more of an artistic endeavor than a technical one. And so we looked at it and we said, you know, why are we striving to create these more and more realistic characters when they're really becoming a little bit off-putting? So we started to do things like the tune shader that we've used on almost all of our films or uh, the majority of our films right. since then. So we're really starting to look at, at using these more illustrative visual styles. Um, some of them are full color. Some of them are black and white. Some of them use a very stylized color palette. Um, a lot of them use the black outline like you would get from storyboarding. Yep. Um, and what happened once we started doing that, there are two really fascinating things that came out of it. And this will circle back to answer your question. Two really fascinating things came out of that. One was that I immediately noticed that the clients started to be much more receptive to the work as a, as a creative process, that their critical brains kind of took a backseat the question of, is it really going to look like that? No longer came up. <laughs> um, and what did come up was like, oh, that's really cool. And maybe what could happen next is, and that's a great, you know, from, a, from our point of view as a previous company, that's what you want your clients to do, right? You don't want them to sit there and look at the work critically of, is she really going to move like that? Is she really going to slide across the floor? You want them to look at it and say, oh, that's awesome. Well, maybe what they should do is burst through the door rather than go through slowly. So you get into a much more creative mind frame. The other thing it did is it opened up a door that hadn't been there before, which was a discussion with our clients over visual style. You know, visual communication becomes kind of the, the foundation of what we do as previs artists. How we communicate with our clients is really through visual style. And realism isn't necessarily the right tool for every client. Some clients are much happier working in abstraction. Ghostbusters, as an example, um, that was a director who had not used Previs before, was not really, you know, our, our sense of it was, um, you know, showing him this kind of realistic, this is what your film is going to look like style Previs wasn't really the way to go. That going with a much more kind of illustrated look, something that really didn't look real per se, but had all the elements of here are your characters, this is your lens, this is how big everything's going to be, this is how quickly it's going to move, kept it in the world of ideas and that that production was much more comfortable communicating in ideas. And then they would make it real on the set. And that made for a very nice demarcation between what we were doing in previs versus what was happening in production. So we were working in ideas. The nice thing is it's previs. Those ideas translate very simply to being on set because we can give them all the information they need. Yeah, but... Uh, I mean, where does the future of previs? Because like on Ghostbusters, um, you know, Paul was also shown a really great previs that was done by the stunt guy, which was stunt viz, which led yeah. to the Times Square sequence. I mean, you know, most post houses would say, uh, I imagine if push came to shove, oh, we can do the previs because, you know, we got animators and people and stuff. Like you guys are specialists and I'm just being argumentative and asking yeah. this. I don't. But, you know, like how, what's stopping you guys just being replaced by being absorbed into, I mean, if the stunt guys can do it and they've even got, you know, kind of effects and stuff in there mm -hmm. and that was so successful that, you know, just changed the script. Like, like what's, what makes previs specialist companies sort of future-proof? 
Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, my, my hope, um, and you know, what, what I'm kind of, you know, basing my decisions on at proof is that, you know, being a, being a special, being a specialized previs company, um, we are that kind of jack of all trades. And, you know, if there's going to be stunt viz, that's great. But the stunt viz is usually not going to address anything outside of that one stunt sequence. So there might be a lot of viz left over outside of that. A lot, you know, there are a lot more questions to look at outside of just what the stunts are going to be focused on. Um, the same issue comes up with the visual effects vendors. A lot of the visual effects vendors at this point do have their own in-house previs teams. Um, but typically, you know, they're looking at previs for visual effects. So they're not going to be a great service for, for instance, the art department that might be looking at their sets and trying to figure out something about how their sets are going to fit on the stage and how big should this set be and, you know, where should we draw the line between physical set and visual effect, you know, the visual effects set extension. You know, we really make ourselves a kind of holistic, collaborative, um, you know, literally interactive part of the production where everything is kind of, all these elements are alive and dynamic and can be looked at at any moment. You know, my sense is that when you start looking at some of the the specialized like stunt choreography or visual effects, we've done a number of shows where the stunts have done the stunt viz and the visual effects vendor, you know, did some, you know, big chunk of the previs that involved the the CG creature. Um, Pete's Dragon, for instance, is a perfect example of, of a little bit of how that worked. Um, Weta was doing the dragon. Now, we did all of the previs because we were really working more on the story side with the director. So Weta wasn't involved at all in that aspect of it because it wasn't so much about visual effects. It was about story. It was about, it was about the dragon as a character and how it was interacting with the other characters in the film and how the story would play out. Once it got to post-viz, we were involved, but we did a lot of the work that was non-dragon-centric because... Weta was focused on the dragon. That's, sure, and they got a little bit of experience in dragons. <laughs> they do dragons really well. Let's face it, they do pretty much everything well, but that's another matter. Yeah. I, okay, so on the same vein of like the future of, of previs, like one of the things that, and I'm not talking about your films now, but like I've noticed with talking to a few um, productions, uh, like, okay, so Godzilla is an example. They did uh, like about 13, I'm going to say, shots that for a Comic-Con thing, which became the visual... Um, look and feel of the film and if you go to Independence Day um, Roland did like I think 12 to 30 stills but these are all like polished final level things that mm. aren't finals but the point about them is that they want to get that that effectively look dev want a better yeah. term done right up front because then you've got a visual diary a visual bible that allows people to sort of see where you're going with it right yeah. like this is how much we want to see godzilla this is how big i want things to feel kind of stuff Do, is there a role for previs to at the same time that you're you're stopping at like a tune shader also doing some stuff that's super polished because you're there at that outset point when people are, are developing ideas um is yeah, that the future Absolutely. I think there's, uh, I think it was, uh, I heard Chris DeFaria, um, give a presentation. I believe it was at FMX a number of years ago, uh, talking about the, the vertical slice that one of the things that, that Warner Brothers at the time was looking at in 
developing some of these films that were more visually ambitious where, you know, it wasn't so obvious from the get-go kind of how things were going to play out and what they're going to look at. He was talking about developing what he called the vertical slice. So a little piece of the film, but doing it beginning to end as a way of looking at, you know, great, we'll take 30 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever it might be, a handful of shots, and we're going to basically run the full production pipeline on this little slice to understand the whole process from design all the way through. And I think they did something similar for Gravity, where they really looked at doing this more elaborate test that allowed them to, A, understand what the production process would be, which gives them the tools that they need in order to budget the film, but also results in something that establishes what the look of the film is and what that style and tone is. Um, you know, Proof has been involved in a number of projects that have done similar kinds of tests where we'll come in and do the previs, and in some instances, one that I, I can think of off the top of my head, actually use our data to feed into robotics and motion control movers. Because at this point, you're talking about things that are not kind of typical in standard production. You wouldn't do this if it was a standard production. You're really talking about the that rare film that is looking at something and saying, how in the world are we going to get this done? Yeah, because I mean, every once in a while, someone comes up with a film, and I think to myself, that's either the dumbest idea I've ever heard <laughs> or I just don't have enough imagination to know how the hell are they going to pull that off. Yeah. And and I can imagine that, you know, there would be a creative director out there to say, no, I've got a way that we can bring uh, – I'm going to pick something that isn't a film project, which is going to be hard, but I can imagine um, – okay, so the magic teacups at Disneyland, right? Yeah. I'm going to make a feature film out of that. Yeah. Which seemed about as realistic – today as it did when I heard that someone was making a Pirates of the Caribbean film sure. and, and I would have been the most wrong guy in, in the world for thinking that wasn't going to work. So so you're making magic tickets and yeah, you just go, How? I've got no idea what this is going to look like. Somebody yeah. better show me something because that seems to me to be like I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Now you would be theoretically involved right now. I just, you know, because obviously somebody would come to greenlight a picture but is Proof as a company wanting to explore getting finals? Because you've got the skills. I mean, you could do it if you wanted to, couldn't you? Um, Even if that's only three or four seconds just to say yeah. that's what a teacup looks like. <laughs> um, you know, I think that we would be – we do final some work on shows. So we're not – you know, we don't – we do some final visual effects. It's usually in, um, you know, as part of an in-house compositing team yeah. as an extension of our post in the In the front end of it, we have done some stuff where we're looking at doing some higher-end rendering, a little bit more of the look dev. And, you know, absolutely we would get involved in doing that, um, you know, for a few shots, for a few keyframes, but not as a – not as part of a visual effects solution for a film. So, you know, I have... No, I have but you described yourself as a design company, right? Yeah. And if I was a print design company, I would take some stuff to mock up print level. Yeah. And that would be a useful service. It's yeah. not a... Certainly an architectural firm could do a really nice rendering for, you know, selling a, I don't know, council to get approval to build something. Sure. Um, and yes, we have and, and we can... What what we like to focus on more, if we can, is um, more design along the lines of story development, um, shot development. If, for the examples that I can think of off the top of my head, if there is something that is a, you know, there's there's going to be some sort of tricky visual effects involved, 
that work is gets so tied up in pipeline right that you know we will often advise our clients um, to go talk to a visual effects vendor because you know let's just use a, a simple example of let's just say you had a giant water demon well sure we could mock up something that would look water demon ish and that could probably look pretty damn good you know as a still frame or a couple of shots but that wouldn't really help the production understand how to bid that work out because that sort of effects driven work is so tied into a vendor's pipeline that you know we would more advise them to say look why don't you go talk to them some vendors okay and see if you can get them to do this because that final work is really going to be a result of what they can actually accomplish. I don't want to, we don't want to set some sort of unrealistic expectation or some sort of unrealistic goal, have the client be like, oh, we want it to look just like that and have the client say, yeah, but that's only possible if you're literally sculpting it frame by frame. <laughs> well, we've discussed a bit about the artist. We've discussed a bit about the future. Uh, can I talk to you about the business side of things? Yeah. Like, so who is it that is typically your client? I imagine it's the studio but I mean, do you ever get approached by like a director who wants to get something greenlit by the studio? Like who, because you could theoretically do a lot of work I would never ever even know about because the film doesn't get made. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our typical client is the studio. Our, our first point of contact is quite often the visual effects producer or the visual effects supervisor who's been hired by the studio and who's then putting their team together. Yeah. Um, there are certainly instances when we get called in by the director and there have even been a number of instances where we've been called in by the production designer. Um, those, those tend to be kind of the, our main points of contact. Ultimately our client becomes the studio. That's who, that's who we're contracted with, because but we're brought like, in through. So a studio might have a development deal with a director and mm -hmm. he sets them up. Cause I mean, this is not atypical and they set them up in an office with a bunch of staff to yeah. develop a project which again we may never see because it may never get beyond that at that point you might get looped in to start working up some stuff i'm talking about that that what i think you call pitch fish yeah right? yeah yeah and but they'd still be the studio that's sort of effectively paying the bill is that right typically we we have we had one really funny uh incident where we did some pitch viz for a director um that was contracted by the studio you know, the studio, the studio contacted us and said, hey, we have this director, he's making this movie, um, but we could really use a nice little pitch viz piece to help sell it because we're trying to get it greenlit. And so we, you know, made our deal with the studio and did the work and it came out great. It was fantastic. And when we finally ended up getting paid, um, the check arrived and the check actually came from the director. And I called up the studio just to kind of say, hey, what, you know, this check wasn't from you guys. I just want to make sure it's the right amount. Like, but I just want to make sure like, it's not what I was expecting. And they said, oh yeah, the, they, the director decided that he wanted to own it. Um, because if the studio passed on making the film, he might right. pitch it to another studio in this way, he retained it. And right. it wasn't the property of the studio. And in that instance, I don't know what conversations went on behind those closed doors, but the studio apparently was totally fine with this idea. Um, so in fact, the director paid for it themselves through their production company so that they retain the rights and they could then use it for future presentations if that studio passed on it. In truth, I don't know whatever happened to that film, so I'm not sure where it is now. How, um, how many projects do you reckon you guys work on that I don't ever see? I mean, because- Very few. Right, so- In truth, I mean, we do a lot of, we do a lot of uh, commercials. So there's a lot of non-film work that happens mm -hmm. here. 
Um, but in terms of the feature film work, uh, I would say, you know, only one out of every, I don't know, maybe one out of every 20 films doesn't actually make it into the So by the time they're doing this kind of work, they're putting down some, you know, sensible money. Yeah. And so you're not doing that if you're not fairly confident. Exactly. And, and we do get, we do get involved in the pre green light phase very often. Um, you know, in the, there, there's a whole new lexicon of, you know, there's this, there's the development phase. Um, we get into the blinking green light phase where it's not really greenlit, but the studio is releasing small chunks of money to do some development, to kind of move things forwards. Um, there are many films that never actually get officially greenlit. Yeah. And I think some films (laughs) are like, you know, I'll green light it if you can get Clooney on board. Right. Yeah. So it's got nothing to do with you guys, right? No, nothing to do with that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, very often we're we're involved in, and then there are the occasional films that we're working on that seem like they're going, that seem like they have the green light, and then for reasons that are always you know above my pay grade, just end up shutting down one day. Yeah, because normally another film in that perceived genre didn't go very well. Exactly. Yeah, and and we're like, okay, great, we'll pack up and and go home, and that work will never be seen by anybody. Yeah. So okay, and so so. That's really interesting in terms of like the business business. In terms of the the tech of the business, um, are you either business-wise interested in doing stuff in say the VR space, which is really hot right now, or are you interested in using that tech at all to previous films? Is there an overlap there? I mean, I I must admit I noticed some VR stuff lying around your office. So that's why I asked. Yes, we're starting quite a little collection of our our VR gear. so yeah, the, the, the full answer is, again, kind of going back to my roots in architecture and, and being an architecture student um, with, by the way, every intention of becoming a practicing architect until I kind of stumbled into this world and discovered how, how great it is. Um, and as, filmmake, as, as film-going community, we'd like to thank you for doing that because we appreciate <laughs> your work. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, as part of my own, you know, as part of my own kind of professional, personal kind of professional development as a previs artist, I've always maintained some some connections to the architecture community. Um, I actually still uh, uh, I teach at UCLA's architecture school. Really, um, I've been a. Uh, uh, I, I did not know that. I think my I think my title is lecturer. I'm not. I have yeah. to go back and look at it, see what my official title is. But yes, I teach uh, I teach one graduate level class a year at the uh, UCLA School of Architecture and Urban hey, Design. Now, hang on a second, right? How long have you been doing, how Proof's been around? I mean, I've been, I heard you lecture like years ago when I was yeah. like. Proof's been around for 14 years. Okay, so for 14 years you've been doing. So for the just, last six, I've, I, think, I think I've taught at UCLA for the past six years. I think this year will be my seventh. Okay, but let's just set the record here. Like Proof is is like a blue chip previous company. Like you guys have done trailblazing work yes. for that time. Like is this because you love architecture to death or just because like you lost a bet or you won a bet <laughs> or what, what, what? Huh? Why? Um, I mean you would have like how could you possibly have time? Uh, that's, I don't know where the time comes from. But um, no, the, the reason was because the story behind that one was, again, I, I, I've kept these connections to the architecture and design community yeah. um, simply because I have them and I'm interested in architecture. And um, through them, we've actually, Proof has done a number of really interesting visualization projects um, that I've been really proud to be a part of. We did, um, we were part of the, uh, 
you know, after 9-11, there was a big architectural design competition for what would replace it, right? Sure, At yeah. Ground Zero. So we were part of one of those submissions, right. um, working with Greg Lynn and a series of other architects. And we were part of the team that helped visualize and create some animations for their submission for that architectural competition. I mean, I've been involved a little bit on that. We did a casino in Australia, uh-huh. and I know that that's a really serious business. Yeah. Like, and, and not only that, but you're dealing with... Um, with, you know, like not dissimilar kind of structure in the sense that, you know, you've got a very big project, timescales are really serious, but you've got to do stuff. But how does that connect to VR? So we've also done a, we did a, with the same group, uh, Greg Lynn and Imaginary Forces, um, we did an installation that went into the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. Um, and then we not, uh, with a separate group, we did an installation that's actually going on right now at the Seattle Art Museum. So I've always been involved in these kind of large scale installation type projects, visualizations for these large scale kind of architectural scale projects. And sometime about a year ago, you know, as all the VR kind of talk was heating up, um, we also did, I guess this was a, a little over a year ago, we did previs for Justin Lin's VR project for Google Spotlight Stories called Help. Yep. So Justin called us up. It was Justin and Alex Vay again. They called us up. They said, hey, Justin's doing this VR thing. Will you help us previsit? And naively, we said, well, sure, of course. And how hard can this be? It's previs, right? Um, we get in there to discover that, um, A, it's a lot more difficult than it sounds to previs something in 360 and that there are a whole new set of kind of storytelling and design considerations to be made that it's not just 360 and a whole it's lot a you whole lost. new world yeah a whole right? lot of things you lost right yeah like, uh, whole new world to be explored yeah. um in terms of staging and blocking and camera movement and cinematography what is exactly. what is cinematography yeah. in this world so all of these things kind of kind of culminated for me. And I, I kind of, again, one of those taking stock moments of, you know, okay, proof, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? What should we be doing? I looked at it and I said to myself, you know something, these are all related. The, the Museum of Modern Art installation, the Seattle Art Museum, the Ground Zero competition, all of these architectural installations would have been so much better as immersive visualizations because they're experiences, They're not movies. They're not shows. They're experiences. We're trying to give our clients a sense of what is this event and give them that kind of first-person POV. If we could could have thrown a headset on them and said this is what it's going to look like, they would have understood so much better and gotten such a better understanding of what this project could be. Um, So very similar to VR. So last January, so January of 2016, I started Prime, Proof Immersive Entertainment which is our immersive visualization and design division. So focus right. specifically on that world. Um, essentially, Proof handles all of the filmed entertainment, movies, commercials, whatever it might be. Um, Prime handles everything that doesn't fit onto a screen, essentially. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're doing ride films. We're uh, bidding on some VR projects. We're actually going to – we're bidding on um, – visualization for a for some museum installations things that are more along the lines of experience design immersive experiences they might not be vr specific but they're the kinds of projects that would really benefit from being able to to be visualized in 360 so we're going to look at these as saying great this is going to be it's not it's using vr for previs so that brings me to my last point which is 
in the world of previews uh, because it's important to telling the story and now in these separate projects that you're running yourself, where does audio fit in? I mean, in visual effects, we don't worry about audio because, you know, we get the turnovers and we know there's going to be audio and there's yeah. really talented guys doing it. But at the early stages on previews and these separate projects, does Proof have an audio division or a group? Or? No, we don't have an audio division. When when we're doing our previews, um, so again, you know, the our, our previous supervisors are, you know, they are rock stars um, because that, that one individual, that one, you know, gifted supervisor, you know, understands story, knows how to communicate with the director, knows how to manage a team, knows how to animate, knows how to create beautiful shots, also knows how to cut them together and edit. Um, like I said, these are filmmakers, right? They're yep. not animators. So the, the supervisors, when they're editing, often, you know, will drop in some basic sound effects, um, just as sound cues, audio cues for, for particular moments. They're not going too in-depth with it, but they'll lay down a music track. They might add some sound effects just to help kind of punch up the action a little bit. Frequently, we're handing our work um, on, a, on film production, we're handing our work over to the editorial department. A lot of these productions are now hiring previs editors. So they'll bring in an, uh, like an assistant editor specifically to work with us in previs okay. because many directors are much more comfortable sitting in an, in an edit bay, watching the movie play out and giving notes than they are standing in a room full of animators giving specific notes on shots. But but at the point that you're talking about a narrative flow as opposed to a shot, right? Yeah. Like obviously in a single shot, you're trying to work out, um, you know, is it physically possible for the dolly to move in the room to pull off what you want? Okay, that's fine. But once you get into this narrative, the storytelling went, um, audio must be, incredibly important without it must fall flat so it must be something yeah. that you we actually we take a an interesting view so ghostbusters was really great uh was a really great example of this um so one of the great kind of litmus tests of previs is to watch it without audio and if you can watch an action scene without audio and you still find it exciting then you know that it's a good sequence because okay. you know it'll simply be that much better once you add in that other layer. Oftentimes, when I'm looking at um, when I'm looking at artist demo reels, especially previs reels, I turn the audio off because it's really easy to get seduced by the audio into thinking, you know, if they pick a really good soundtrack and some good sound effects, you can get really into it, right? Yeah. You can get really seduced into it. With Ghostbusters, one of the things that we realized was a great way to test if something's funny was to watch it without any sound. But didn't you say that Paul was not used to doing previous because his background is movies like spy and comedies yeah. and stuff, right? So if you were showing a sequence to a director such as obviously a very successful director but, yeah. you know, just not one that's used to previous, you would still show it silent? Like you all, would take all of that work actually went through their editorial department. Okay. So I think they were adding sound. Okay. And, yeah, but no, for us internally, as we were working, as we were working out sequences and as we were kind of testing out because there were a lot of those, there were a lot of the sequences where – um, let's just say that that one of the things we were charged with was trying to kind of find the funny in it. Right. You know, we were kind of told what the basic elements of the sequence were, but exactly how things played out was not necessarily spelled out to us because, again, this is not a director who is very, you know, was very kind of fluent in visual effects and, and was going to kind of specify, oh, I want this to happen exactly here. It was more of here are all the elements. We know it's in there somewhere, take them, play around with them, find it. And so watching the previs without audio was a great test for us of what was working and what wasn't working. Because if it makes sense, if you're kind of understanding the flow of it, understanding the, the action, 
and actually getting a few, you know, a few laughs out of the people watching it, then you know you've actually created something that's working. Okay, but but you're relying here on presumably either the skill of your team to allow time for audio to happen because sometimes mm. you need sort of space for the audio. Yeah. But in the case of the comedy, you almost need to allow time for the laugh, otherwise you're stepping on the next yeah. next bit. Does that not matter in previous because it's not the final cut or is it like you just assume that because you're not that specific to it? what I'm saying? Like it's... Yeah, we're not getting that specific. Yeah, so it's like, okay, so if it's if at the framing and the beats kind of work, yeah. then you'll have a, a different yeah. timing when that's done with a performance of the comedic actors and the exactly. allowance for... So a lot of the times with our previews, especially if it's performance, you know, if it's action, you know, cars driving sort of thing, yep. um, our sequences usually time out really close to what the final film looks like. So shot for shot, we're usually pretty, we're pretty dead on in terms of the timing. When it's more performance-driven previs, typically our previs ends up being about um, 75% of the duration of the sequence because the director is always going to linger on the actors a little bit longer, let them actually do their thing and perform, right? So we'll hold a close-up for about a second, maybe a second and a half because our previs actors don't do a whole lot. Right. Whereas in the final film you're going to hold on Melissa McCarthy for a lot longer yeah, than that. Yeah, she can hold it. Yeah. yeah. It's real star power. So I guess I I wasn't going to ask you this question because it's I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but you've kind of opened the door to it. When you go to the cinema and watch a final or yeah. something that you guys previewed in the last 14 years, is it getting closer to what you previewed or further away because things are developing more? This is not a comment on your previews, you understand? Yeah. It's just like is it these days that the previews tends to be seen to hold longer or, or less? I mean, in terms of how closely the previs and yeah, the final like match the together? the film that you see in the cinema is like nothing like the thing that you previs or it, exactly the same? It is, you know, if I go back, if I go back to kind of my, my own early days, so one of the first projects I got to work on was uh, Panic Room with David Fincher. Yeah. And... That was very technical previs. I remember you talking about that. That yeah. was like... That was like lensing and heights. And yeah. It was- and that film, you know, it, you know, huge chunks of it match one for one with the previous. I mean, there are um, shots in her outside the panic room that yeah. I remember you talking about that were like, you played them to me like, oh, I was in the audience. You didn't know who I was. But you were playing them <laughs> side by side and they were yeah. like, oh my God. Yes, yeah. dead like, matches, right? Yeah. Um, and that's still the case. You know, we have certain films where they, you know, the, the two, the previous and the final really correlate together really well. Um, I've taken, you know, I've taken a, a, a different kind of stance on this now and I look at it and, you know, the correlation of previs to final for me used to be, and I guess it still is to some degree, you know, a big source of pride. Like if we're, if our previs matches the final, then clearly we're doing something right. But that really has more to do with the kind of the style of the director and some directors are, are, you know, have a very kind of linear creative progression, script, storyboard, previs, movie. And, you know, they have a clear sense of where they're going. And each step along the way, they're developing that visual idea, you know, kind of getting closer and closer until they actually film it. And that's the one. So in that sense, it's kind of like, well, of course, the previs matches the final because you have a director that has a very clear sense of what they're trying to get right, at. Right, because like Hitchcock had really accurate storyboard frames, right? right? So exactly. So they still match it, them, yeah. It's no, it's no mystery that they would match up. 
Um, you know, other directors are, you know, kind of more exploratory. I like to look at our previs a little bit, you know, and this isn't kind of the, the most alluring analogy ever, but um, I like to look at our previs a little bit like insurance. So if we previs a sequence, especially if it's a big visual effect sequence where you got a lot of moving parts and very technical filmmaking, then we really are the template for what that film is going to look like because everyone's looking at that previs as the blueprint. You know, this piece is here, that piece is there, this is going to be filmed on a stage, this is miniature, that's motion control. All the pieces have to line up in order to make the shot. You have no choice. They may have well used it to bid. Right? Yeah. So it's um, like- if you're looking at previs along the lines of Ghostbusters where a lot of it is much more performance-driven than it is action-driven, um, then you know our previs is really more of an insurance policy. Hey, if you get these shots, you know you have a sequence that will work. So when you go out on there on the day to shoot, get these shots in the can, you know you've got something that will cut together. Now, what can you do on set to push it further? But and, I think the other thing is giving the director that little extra kind of confidence and freedom to explore on set. Yeah, but also I've talked to directors who, you know, like we, we talk about this in kind of ethereal terms, but like they're like, oh, you've got no idea how just it's like a nightmare of questions on set. Like there's just so much going on yeah. that if I've previsited it, then I can worry about making sure the actors deliver a performance, which is the one thing that I really need to be worrying about. Exactly. And all the other crap I can sort of put out of my head because I solved it when I didn't have yeah. – really highly trained, very good professional actors standing yeah. around in front of me. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't really think of it that way, but I can, you know, you, you worry about all the lensing and the stuff so that you don't have to worry about it when you're with a, a Academy Award winning kind of actor that's trying to give you something that's not exactly. easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's really the best use of the previs that the director can, you know, as questions come up, director can kind of point to the previs and say, that's the shot. Do whatever you need to do to make, make that, that happen. happen. While I worry about <laughs> While this. I worry yeah. about, you know, the performance and really getting the best moment out of this and really yeah. making it sing. Yeah. And that's where we can also come in. And if there's a question, you know, how high off the ground is the camera? You know, what lens is it? I mean, those are all the, that's all the data that we have access to um, that can really help make that production kind of move very smoothly so that you don't have a bunch of people standing around on set saying, well, what are we supposed to be doing now? Where exactly is the camera in order to get that angle? Right, yeah. And we don't really need that technocrane because this is all going to be done at CG. And yeah. Why did we waste time getting that crane out? Hey, it's been terrific talking to you. Thank yeah, you thank so you. so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I, th- I thought it was a good explanation of kind of where Previs fits in and how far. I really like the idea of some of the shaders uh, that they were talking about and making things look good but not distracting. I thought that was an interesting conversation. So that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.